Dotnet Rocks, episode 1060, with guest Greg Shackles. Recorded Tuesday, October 28th, 2014. Hey, welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. I'm Richard Campbell. And we're here. What's up, buddy? Well, you know, the big storm just came through last night that made it very clear that it is fall. Yes. Our leaves are falling. Yes. They're, it's well, you, done. Didn't you take your girl out for a little cruise around oh, checking out the so leaves? Oh, it was so nice. It was so nice. It was a little early, but, you know, the Yankee magazine has like a fall foliage schedule. Nice. And it looked like peak time to me on that map, but it really was. It was just a little bit early. But yeah, we went north. Uh, if anybody knows the New England area, Connecticut goes north from New Haven on 91. You can take Route 5 in Massachusetts. All the way up to Vermont, New Hampshire. It goes right up the border there. Nice. And so we, we sort of went up Route 5, which is, you know, it's back roads, right? You get those, yeah, well, those are like revolutionary roads, right? Yeah. Paul yeah. Revere Road here. Yeah, not that bad, I don't think, but, uh, you know, fairly straight. But still, it was the road that was there before the highway, before right. 91. And then we came back on 91. Turns out there's a lot more foliage on the highway. Because it goes right through the woods, you know what I mean? Oh, okay. Whereas the the back roads, there's businesses and Dunkin' Donuts and stoplights and gas stations and stuff. So there's not as much. But um, but we got to see it a little more up close on the way up. But it was nice. fun. I, I just love being in New England in the fall. Yeah. All right. Let's start the crazy music. I got something cool. All right, buddy. What do you got? Well, for Better Know Framework today... Something has nothing to do with the framework <laughs> or programming. Well, it does programming, I guess, but check out tinyurl.com slash bebop sensors. B-E-B-O-P sensors. Uh-oh. Bebop sensors launch wearable smart fabric technology. The first thin smart fabric sensors to measure all aspects of physicality. Force, location, size, twist, bend, stretch, and motion. Interesting. The list goes on and on. This is a press release. This is on thomas-pr.com. But, uh, and, and I think there's a Kickstarter you can get behind for this. But they do, they have a little a demo or some pictures at least of them using a little patch to control a media player. I thought that was kind of fun. Yeah, it's just, you know, it speaks to possibilities. Something small enough and flat enough that you can wear it or put it on your body somewhere and it can tell you when how you're moving and you can manipulate it you know we're getting i've got a mio finally the the wristband thing that yeah measures hey, nothing ever works as well as you hope but it, it's interesting it just sort of speaks to instrumenting the body more and more and using it to be able to signal stuff so i got a story for you back right. when my oldest daughter who's now in college second year when she was i don't know uh, eight nine ten i don't know whatever she was she was young she walked on her tippy toes. Well, she walked on her tippy toes, you know, for the longest time since yep. she was a kid, since she was walking. And it's genetic. Like her, her mother did it, her grandmother, her great-grandmother. And me being, you know, programmer guy, I found some um, sensors that measured force that were these flexible sensors. And I was going to make a shoe for her using, and I can't remember what it was. It might have been basic stamp. Yeah, I think we talked about this 10 plus years ago. We might have. Yeah. yeah. So I wanted to make put it in her shoe so that when when the the front 
was down, a, a force in the toe and a force in the heel. And when the, he, the, the heel wasn't down after a number of seconds and there was movement, you know, force on the foot, that it would sort of do something, whether yeah, alert her or, or shock her or whatever. <laughs> you know, <it's, laughs> How are you talking about electrocuting your children? <laughs> Just a little buzz, you know. <laughs> well, we had, uh, we had some good good thoughts about that but i never actually did it but this looks like you could do something like yeah, that really Even connect to your iphone perhaps i don't know crazy all right that's that's what i got richard who's talking to us grabbed a comment off of show 1002 and that is the one we did with uh, paul stovall we talked about octopus deploy oh yeah and Dwayne newman has this great comedy he says i'm working on automating my current client's build process and listening to the show for ideas in regards to powershell as a developer i love it which is cool, you know, that yeah. developers love PowerShell. Uh-huh. Is it supposed to be an IT tool? Although it has taken me some time to get to the point where I remember what I'm doing, I'm glad that I've stuck with it because it, it has a lot of command structure. So it, it takes does. a while to get it. It's one of those cut and paste languages. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> For a while, it, anyway. <laughs> well, I think almost indefinitely. Nobody uses it enough. So you just, it's one of those things where I have a repository of, of scripts that I like. And before I go writing anything new, I go grab the one that's close and then tinker with it. You said nobody knows it all. Right now, Hanselman is hanging his head in shame, listening to us like, Richard, you, you should have just, oh man, what are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> yep. I haven't got room for all of that stuff. I'm remembering really useless things like the order of Mars missions by Americans. I don't know. <laughs> Anyway, let's get back to Dwayne's comment here. He says, uh, it's not only a great way to deal with things that need to happen in a build or deployment process, because PowerShell sort of plays that role of glue in getting the automation really working. It saves me a lot of time on regular day-to-day development requirements. The fact that everything running through the pipeline are objects is such a powerful concept that I think that most people miss it entirely and just think that PowerShell is a way to bring out the Linuxy console to Windows. I mm. love that. Mm-hmm. I had heard of Octopus Deployed before, but only by name and not much about the actual functionality. I'll be trying it out for our deployment to our development servers as soon as I can get the build process automated. Thanks for bringing yet another cool tool to my attention. So, you know, as we're talking through this whole continuous integration process, continuous delivery, it's important to remember that you're never going to buy a tool that does everything. PowerShell's the glue. That's the thing that fits in the bits to get everything together so you can assemble the set of tools that make sense for you. Right. Hey, Dwayne, thanks so much for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or in any of our mobile apps. We've got them for iOS, Android, Windows Phone 7 and 8, and Windows 8. And that brings us to Greg Shackles. Greg has been on the tablet show before, but never on .NET Rocks. Uh, we're proud to have him here. Greg Shackles is a senior software engineer at Olo. He's a Xamarin MVP, host of the Gone Mobile podcast, organizer of the New York City Mobile.net Developers Group, author of Mobile Development with C Sharp and a monthly Visual Studio Magazine column, and is a regular speaker at many user groups and developer events. Outside of technology, Greg's obsessed with heavy metal, baseball, and craft beer, sometimes in combination, (laughs) and also is an aspiring home brewer. Welcome to .NET Rocks, Greg. Glad to have you here. Oh, glad to be here. It's good to talk to you guys again. We last talked on the Tablet Show about building cross-platform mobile apps. Uh, that was March 10th, 2014. And we were talking about MVVM Cross, a little bit about NUnit Lite, and uh, that kind of stuff. Things have changed, even in that small time frame, which is what, 
seven months, even in that small time frame, things have really changed, haven't they? Yeah, I mean those uh, those monkeys over at Xamarin are uh, pretty productive, so they're they're constantly churning out new stuff, which is it's awesome. The space is really really awesome right now. Yeah, sure is. And so now you're you're focusing here on continuous integration now uh, with Xamarin apps, and and that's pretty important, just because. First of all, let me tell you, as somebody who's doing some Xamarin development, there's so many moving parts that if you leave it alone for a month. I don't know if this is your experience too, but if you leave it alone for a couple of weeks or a month and you come back, suddenly you've got a lot of things to update and some things may have changed. Is Does it seem like that's the way it is in Xamarin land? I mean, that's just kind of the way it is in mobile in general. I mean, there's so many moving parts involved in putting out a mobile app. You know, there's the, the OS that you're developing it on. There's the tools. So there's the iOS tools and the Android tools, and they have their own versions. And mm. then when you start layering and other things, so you have your, your Xamarin tools, and then you have, you know, maybe a framework like Forms or MVVM Cross, and each of those have their own versions. And it's just, it gets really, really difficult to, to keep track of all this stuff and, also start like continue to use your development machine as your deployment machine as well. Right. Like we all, we all kind of agreed a long time ago as, as web developers. Like I also do, I mean, I come from a web background as well and I still do it. Um, we all agreed a long time ago that we shouldn't be using our, our local machines as, you know, the, the single source of what we deploy. Like we stopped copying bin folders from our local machine a long time ago, but somehow with mobile development, we kind of just took a step back and, you know, it suddenly became fine to, to start doing that again. And probably because of what we're saying, there's so many moving parts. And not only that, but you now with the Xamarin thing, you have uh, the have to have the same versions of things on the Mac and on the PC if you're doing iOS. Yeah, it's it, like I said, there's just a lot of moving parts. Um, so in, in some ways, kind of what we're talking about today is is a bit of an evolution of of what we were talking about six months ago, because... Um, just to kind of give, I don't want to repeat myself too much from last time, to, you know, to bore all the users, but uh, the kind of platform that, that I'm working on is a, a white label app platform. So it means that uh, for every one of our brands that we have on our system that we're putting apps out for, we kind of just reskin the app and, and tweak it according to the different brands. And then we put out iOS and Android versions for each one. Not only are there a lot of moving parts in, in any mobile app, but now you can multiply, for us, you can multiply each one of those by the number of clients that we have in platforms. So, you know, a bug in one of those apps means a bug in a large number of apps. So the ability to, to have a real stable base to fall back on and a nice predictable build process and, and something that's a little more automated was kind of, you know, priority number one once we got this platform rolled out. And kind of speaking to the, you know, just to your other point before about um, how things are moving in the Xamarin space. I mean, I, I just, so this is also piggybacking on uh, a talk I just gave at Xamarin's Evolve conference uh, a couple weeks ago in Atlanta. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and it was actually real cool to see. I mean, I've been involved in the Xamarin community for, I guess, four or five years at this point, you know, before the, the word Xamarin was even a thing. Um, and it's really awesome to see the kind of the evolution, um, you know, no pun intended on the conference name. <laughs> Uh, of, of just the community in general and the types of apps that are being built on it. I mean, I know last year I gave a talk on building testable apps and things like that, um, you know, closer to what we talked about on the tablet show last time. Right. But there is, and it was kind of like one of its kind last year. It was, you know, there, there's a pretty good turnout, but it wasn't a, a big theme. But this year there was a big, you know, overarching theme of building testable apps using test cloud and automated UI testing. There was a lot of talk about, 
um, processes like my continuous integration talk that I was worried would bring maybe 10 people in and it filled a, a couple hundred person room. Nice. Um, and, and things like focus on things like security and, and a lot of stuff that to me signals a, a real maturity in the platform. Um, so it's, it's really encouraging for me personally to, to see that kind of direction happening within the community and the, a real demand from developers to, to come learn about this stuff. When I think about continuous deployment or even the continuous delivery ideas, this is more of the almost internal app or B2C app. You know, Angry Birds doesn't need to be updated that often. But if I'm actually interacting with my customers, then it's now this is software that's in sync with my overall ERP or, you know, custom systems that run inside of my company. But there are some terrible problems with all of that because you've got this diversity of platform. It's true. And, and I mean, you can, you can kind of reason about it in, in multiple ways. Um, and kind of the, the caveat I gave at the top of my talk at Evolve, um, I'll try not to repeat everything I did there too, because the video's up and the slides and everything, but. Oh, that's quite all right. We don't mind if you repeat. <laughs> that's fine. So I, I can just play the video and we can sit back and drink. There you uh, go. Um, <laughs> that's not a bad idea, actually. Yeah. Um, so anyway, the, the caveat that I give is, I mean, my talk was titled, uh, something around continuous integration, but for me, uh, like a, a better title would have been something about, you know, something along the lines of automate all the things or, you know, let your tools work for you or something. Because yeah. to me, I mean, there's a lot of different terms out there now. I mean, you mentioned there's continuous integration, continuous delivery, deployment. Um, and then there's other things like continuous testing and monitoring, you know, be them real terms or not. But to me, the the real the only word I really care about there and i guess you know it may anger purists of one of the you know different definitions or whatever but to me the only thing i care about is continuous so mm -hmm. that you know your your tools are working for you every time you commit you can really easily push out test builds to your you know locally or to your qa department or anything like that and then the other big thing is once your app is out there you know the continuous to me doesn't really stop there's a, there's a whole monitoring piece and you need to know what's happening in your app out there so the more you can it really to me, it boils down to just tying all of your tools together in some sort of cohesive system and then letting them do as much work for you as possible. So it seems to me before we even start talking about the process and the tools that we think about what can we do to minimize the amount of dependency that we have on client-side code? Because you know it would be best to not have to deploy a new version at all when we make a change, right? I mean, that is obviously not possible, but how close can we get with architecture? It can be difficult with, you know, native apps because a lot of stuff is compiled on the phone. But uh, is this an advantage that hybrid apps have over native apps? Yeah, I was just wondering, aren't you making an argument for mobile web? Uh, I hope not, because then I'm not uh, doing my job correctly. No, no, no. <laughs> no I, and I know that I know that that's not the answer, but uh, you know, in some cases. But are the things that we can do inside of a native app to mitigate that problem? I mean, it, you know, I, I made a joke before, but uh, what you say is is a thousand percent true, really. And and it's 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 a pain I feel regularly with the kind of platform that I run, where for again, for every app that I have out there, you can multiply it by n number of clients, and then. You know, it doesn't necessarily have to be a bug fix. It could be a new feature that we want to push into the app. And then suddenly we have to deploy, you know, 10 or 20 apps or however many it is that yeah. uh, we feel need that feature. And now you got to convince the user to upgrade. Well, that's that's the other thing, too. I mean, it's 
that's actually not as bad as it used to be. Right. Um, thankfully, you know, Android users generally upgrade or the, the Android store is a lot better than it used to be, which is really cool. Mm. iOS people are generally pretty good at it. Um, but it really is just a matter of it. there's a lot of overhead and process just of getting an app from, you know, a piece of code from your IDE out to the app store. Mm. So being able to to automate packaging and, and testing and all that kind of stuff it is super, super important. I'm thinking of um, a feature where, you know, I mean, the obvious issue is something slips through the tests or maybe you're not testing or whatever. And, and you have a situation where user goes to press a button or do, does something, some unexpected condition happens and they get some sort of error message. Grant, you know, God forbid they get an error message or, or something that they expected to happen doesn't happen even if there is no error message is the, is it a good idea to at that point in your code you know in the in your exception handler go check to see if there's a new version and if there is just uh, suggest hey you know something didn't happen here but there is a new version maybe you'd like to try downloading that i do think it's a good idea so there's a couple ways that we try and approach it i mean for one um, anything that we can hide on our side behind some sort of feature toggle in the app, yeah, uh, we, we do that. So at least when we ship out an app, even if a brand doesn't have a certain feature turned on or off, ideally it should just require a configuration update on our server side mm. to light up light up that feature or you know light turn the the feature off or things like that. So the more that apps can be a little more reactive to uh, things that are happening on the server side, be it that they're just turning on and off features or pulling down, say, new configuration. Uh, that kind of thing is going to go a long way to keep you from having to, you know, again, like you said, deploy new versions of the app for every single change you want to make. Right. I mean, that's kind of the... That's a that's great always, idea. That's always the downside of a thick client on anything. I mean, be it a Windows app or be it, you know, a mobile app. It's, you know, you don't get the, you don't get the instant refresh cycle that you do with web development. You know, and that's actually a very cool idea. And we've been doing that in the Windows space for a while, too. In, uh, I came from a, a developer tool company, and I remember we had a free version of our tool, of one of our tools, and a pay version of one of our tools. They were both the same version, and all the code was delivered, you know, to the user. And it's just with a, the flick of a switch of a configuration or whatever we did that enabled those new features. And that's, it's a very, very cool idea. And that way, you know, you can you can turn it on, see what happens, and if there's an issue, you just turn it off, and their app still works. Exactly. And the one caveat I would add to that is that, I mean, there is still a, depending on what you're doing, there's definitely a security aspect to shipping everything in the app and turning it on within the app. So mm. whatever, you know, uh, hopefully it goes without saying that whatever API you're hitting over on your server side is also doing... Um, you know, permissions checks to make sure that whatever the app is claiming that it's it, it's allowed to do, it is actually allowed to do. Yeah, very cool. Do you have any other, um, I, I don't know if there's any kind of um, dynamic plug-in kind of update in place mechanism that you can do or ask the user if they want to automatically download new updates and install them? Is that a kind of thing that you can that you can do? You definitely can. And we do, um, we do something similar on our platform in certain cases where, uh, for, for certain API keys in our system, we can say, well, specify a, you know, a current version and a minimum version and things like that. And then we have the ability to send down in the, the header response, um, a little, you know, piece of meta information that tells whoever's receiving it, um, here, here's some information, um, about the current version that you're, you're using compared to whatever, 
um, version we know is the most recent one. And then it gives the app uh, the information it needs if it wants to do some sort of prompt and say, hey, you know, tap here to go over to the app store and update your app. Um, so building things like that into your um, into your API and transport layer is, is a good idea too as well. Because yeah, normally you don't see that. You have to sort of check to see if the app has got an update yourself. I like the idea that an app says to me, go update. You could make me really angry if your library says, yeah, there's a newer version, but this not in the store yet. That would suck. Right. Yeah. Like that's why mm. for us, we, we make it a little more of a manual process of, you know, once we know an updates in the store, if we want to start doing this sort of prompting, uh, we have the ability to just um, set some extra data in, in the API client um, configuration on our server side. So that doesn't require anything. And then all the requests that every one of our apps is making out to our server also includes some header information about the, the current version. Right. So you could, you could do some sort of checks there to, to see if there's a discrepancy. Okay. And of course, the, the fear here is that you roll out, I, I'm, I'm guessing the Apple Store is the toughest one. You roll out a broken version of the app to the Apple Store, and now you've got at least, what, two or three days before you can replace it. <laughs> mm. Two or three days would be nice. I mean, right now, I mean, at least... Since about a week before iOS 8 came out to even currently, the review times we've been seeing are at close to two weeks. So it's, oh, it's man. pretty, wow. it's been pretty rough. They're starting to recover a little bit from, uh, I think the, the surge they got right around the iOS 8 release, but it's, the cycle is pretty rough. Um, but you're absolutely right. And there's not, um, in Android, you can, you could do some stuff to, to pull an app out of the store. But in the case of iOS, you, you just can't. So like, I remember my, my go-to story on that is, I think it was a, that a couple of years ago now, like Amazon released a Kindle update to the, the, the iTunes app store, um, that they found out after it got released, it wiped out all of your media as soon as you opened it. Oh, so, oh <laughs> man. Ouch. Um, so the best that they could do while they, and I'm sure they have pretty good pull with Apple. So they got somewhat priority queuing there, or I would assume so. Um, but the best that they could do in the meantime, and I still have a screenshot of this because I, it was just kind of, I was, I was flabbergasted to see this, you know, basically the best that they could do was update the description of the app in the store to like have big capital letters or something that says, please don't download this app. Wait for the next version. <laughs> <laughs> oh my. Why can't you just pull it? It's yeah. yeah I mean, you, sh you should be able to. And I mean, I, I guess it's probably around some sort of consistency that they want of, you know, people might already have that version and it, can, and it could cause problems, but uh, ideally, you'd be able to pull something that you know is bad, and then at least then only the people who current who already had it would get that update. Yeah, but it's a tricky situation. And, and are we just focused on Android and iOS here? Like, do, is WinPhone even in the conversation? I mean, it's and you could say no. <laughs> I mean, I, I could say that it's not in our conversations, just because. I, and it could be, and it and it's one of the things when we were. Um, Anyway, we, we talked about this on the tablet show of how we migrated from um, a, a system built in titanium over to, to completely over to a Xamarin platform. And it's architected using MVVM cross and things like that in a way where that if if someday we did want to take this over to Windows Phone, then it wouldn't be you know an insurmountable task. It wouldn't be like a year of work. Uh, but to date, um, no, no customers really come to us with any serious question about Windows Phone. Right. So it hasn't hasn't really crossed our radar. Well, and huh. I got to think, you know, there's you've got to learn the deployment model for each one of these platforms. So I would not be in a hurry to take on more than I absolutely have to take on. Exactly, exactly. I mean, we have our hands full right now with just iOS and Android, and and I mean, that's only the app part of our platform. It's a it's a huge, huge platform in general. So 
you know, we generally don't try and, and dive into too many things that we don't absolutely have to. Now, you say our platform, are you using the uh, Xamarin forms in your platform? Uh, we're not. So, I mean, the, the app platform that we built is, is built entirely on MVVM Cross. I mean, this was built, um, like, the architecture of this started, like, well before forms was even in private betas or things right. like that. Sure. Uh, but but at this point, I mean, for the kind of stuff that we're doing, it's there'd be certain things that forms would be would be great at. Like some of the sc- screens are pretty similar, but we don't personally. And this is all you know, personal opinion. I haven't found that having to recreate my views a couple times uh, really costs us that much time, since a lot of the logic is all baked into the view model layer anyway, and the service layer and things like that. Well, but you know how to use the tools, right? And that's the difference. Everything's easy when you have all the answers. Nice. <laughs> oh, well, sure. I mean, that goes without saying. Yeah. <laughs> I think, well, it's just a swap of one problems for another, right? It's like, true. I, I don't think there's a perfect solution here. Yeah. Yeah. But Form, Forms is a great platform. I mean, it's, it's obviously a V1 and they're, they're doing, they have a lot of good things in the pipeline coming yes, for they that. Do. So it's, yeah. I, I expect it to get better and better. So tell us a little bit more about your platform. Is this something that you're just working on internally? Is it something that you're sharing with the world or, or what's the story there? So, I mean, just kind of scoping it to the the app platform side. I mean, we do we do online ordering for restaurant chains, so a brand like Wingstop or Five Guys, and and those kind of big brands that want um, they want a an online ordering platform, but they want something that's fully white labeled and branded and yeah. integrated with their stores and things like that. So there, there's a lot of moving parts there. But then for the app platform, it's this. Um, we've built out this kind of um, skinnable system where we can we can spin up iOS and Android apps based on uh, templates that we've defined and a bunch of scaffolding and, and things like that. So we can share um, pretty much all the code between every iOS app and every Android app. And then mm-hmm. all of those share probably 60 to 70% of their code just with a, a shared portable class library as well. We have a lot of, um, and this is where a lot of my experience around the the CI stuff that we were going to talk about comes came in where we have a, a real need to just really automate everything. I mean, you can't, for a while, at least in the early days of, of building out this mobile platform, and it was basically just fell onto the engineering team to do a lot of the release steps and, you know, building release notes and clicking things in, in iTunes Connect and Google Play. Um, and it, it just ends up taking up a lot of core engineering time. So we really needed, um, we, we needed a system to, to be built out to, to really pull that off of the engineering team, in addition to having all the other normal benefits of things like continuous integration. So uh, if you're talking about continuous deployment, as per what we were talking about before, when, you know, you really want to take care in how many times a day you update a mobile <laughs> app, um, what are we talking about updating here? The backend stuff, mostly? Um, how, how often do you update clients in people's hands? Sure. So I, I, um, I guess what I can do is I can step back a little bit and talk about um, just, just basically what our workflow is like as sure. far as um, our infrastructure goes. So the uh, the way that it's we're, we're set up. So we use um, we use Git as our source control, and, and everything's in GitHub. Um, and then what we really do is we take advantage of um, really the the branching functionality in Git to to take the full advantage of the source control platform there. Um, so you know it's kind of the standard Git flow model that um, you'd see in a lot of different shops where. You know, um, we have our master branches and then all, all feature work happens in feature branches. But the key thing there is that 
every commit to every branch, regardless of whether it's the master branch or the feature branch, um, it builds every piece of our system. So, you know, the things that talk, the pieces that talk to the API or the shared layer between iOS and Android, um, and the core, the UI layers of Android. And then also every single one of our, our apps that is, is skinned and, um, that we have clients for. So on every single commit, the whole system basically lights up and builds and you'll know pretty quickly if, if you've broken something there. And then moving a little bit past that, we also have the ability to do one-click deploys from uh, from any branch in Git to something like test flight if we want to do some iOS testing. So if our QA department wants to work on, you know, testing the new branch for, for brand X that wants to go out, it doesn't require even pulling down any code onto to my development machine if I haven't even updated in a while. All I have to do is go into my Team City instance. I say deploy to test flight. I select the brand and I select the, uh, we have the ability to point it at different, um, OLO environments. So say our staging environment or our live environment. And it's actually going to go push that out to test flight and shoot a message into our, our hip chat room with a link to it so that you know it happens. So it's, um, like I said before, the, to me, it really boils down to just like basically everything these days has an API. So you can just start tying everything together in some sort of cohesive system. Um, so that you don't really have to do a whole lot of manual work. And then uh, the final step past that would then be, um, let's say, App Store distribution. So that's so we have the ability to create Android packages or push iOS packages out to, to test flight. Um, and the, but then we also have um, one-click builds that will create the, the iOS package that you need to upload to the App Store or the Android package that you need to upload to the App Store. And then it publishes those as artifacts in TeamCity. So then um, that's also, again, not something that you need to be doing on your local environment, which, yes, as we were talking about at the, the top of the show, given how many different tool chains are involved and how many things may or may not be different on your machine versus a more stable environment, having a, a nice, predictable, repeatable build process for, for what's going out is, is really, really important, especially for apps. For sure. Because I know, I, especially when, when back when I was building um, all of my apps locally, and you know, you say you go into Xamarin Studio, you say you switch the configuration to App Store, and you hit build. You don't easily know what changed on your system in between when you created that test build and when you created the, you know, that App Store build. There could have been, you know, an update to OS 10, or there could have been, you know, a slight Android tool update or a Xamarin version update. Yeah, I got to think, like you said, the iOS 8 thing just is a mayhem for everybody. Exactly. So being able to have some sort of separate build environment where you can update it, you know, very strategically or specifically, like, you know, okay, I'm updating all my stuff over to Xcode 6 and the iOS 8 build chain and all of this. Um, you could do it, um, very intentionally as opposed to, I want to update my local build or my local dev environment to, to start toying with this stuff without screwing up every release that I want to do in the future. Right. I get it. So it's not that. It's not that everything's in the pipeline to, you know, when you press a button 10 times a day, the client gets a new version. It's that everything that uh, that you have to do that takes a little bit of time is automated. So that uh, so that just makes your life easier. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is? Uh, it must be that happy time again. Yeah. Time to enable the bad developer speak joke feature of .NET Rocks and hit the <laughs> deploy button. <laughs> But you had to wait two weeks before you see it on your Apple. That's right. It takes two <laughs> weeks for you to get the joke. <laughs> but you can't take it back. That's right. <laughs> but you can change it to, don't read this joke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, too late. 
<laughs> Actually, it's time to give away a Telerik DevCraft collection to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But before I tell you who won today, Telerik DevCraft is the most complete .NET toolbox for web, mobile, and desktop development. With the addition of UI for Xamarin to the DevCraft bundle, you can now create compelling native mobile experiences with your C-sharp skills. Download a free trial at tinyurl.com slash devcrafttrial. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner is Paul Gravescom. Congratulations, Paul. Golf clap for you, sir. Yeah. And uh, Paul just won a Telerik DevCraft collection. That's a big pile of goodness and awesome from Telerik. And if you don't know what we're talking about here, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .NET Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world, and uh, every show we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away $5,000 worth of technology to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. And we'd like to ask our guest, Greg Shackles, if you had $5,000 to spend right now on technology, what would you buy? Uh, well, I'd probably have to go with um, some sort of homebrewing gear. I mean, we've talked about it, you know, it was in my bio. Yeah. And I know we, we chatted about it on the tablet show last time. Sure. Um, unfortunately, $5,000 wouldn't buy me the, the space in a New York City apartment needed for a lot of the toys <laughs> I would want. That would, that would barely buy me the yeast that I'd want. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, could, I could think of a few things. I mean, one would, I mean, right now I have a, a Wi-Fi enabled temperature controller on my, my fermentation chamber. Oh, so I can, moni- love it. I can monitor the temperature from the web and ah. you could set different curves and things. So ah, I would love ah. to have the same sort of thing with you know, specific gravity or something. Um, but another thing that would be really cool, I don't know if you guys have seen this, is there's a device called uh, the Pico Brew, where you can see at picobrew.com, where I mean, it it goes against my better senses a little bit because it's this um, an automatic all-grain brewing appliance. So it's kind of one of those, you, you dump in a bunch of stuff and you you tap in a recipe and it just does all the hard work for you. Oh, it's like a bread maker for beer. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, kind of. Um, so liquid bread. But you have... Um, so, I mean, I do enjoy the brewing process, too, so I wouldn't want to give that up, aside from all the cleaning and stuff. You know, I need a, bre- I need a brewing assistant, really. How do you really, spell that Pico thing? So, P-I-C-O brew. Okay. 1800 bucks. Yeah, I could buy that and, and all sorts of toys, or maybe just a couple of these. But it'd be nice to, to have something where it doesn't have to take me all day if I just want to kind of try a recipe or, or things like that. And it's got Wi-Fi, so you know it's good. Exactly. Mm. If it doesn't have an IP address, it doesn't count. <laughs> <laughs> I need a t-shirt that says that. <laughs> yeah. If it ain't IP, it isn't. Yeah. <laughs> Just doesn't count. Doesn't count. That's hilarious. All right. So let's get into your CI sample that you uh, have on GitHub here and that you talked about at uh, Evolve. Yeah, so I have, um, basically, I, what I tried to do was, um, take a lot of the stuff that I had built out at, at Olo for our build environment and just distill it back into a sample that I can, well, for one, that I can actually share. Um, and two, that, you know, just had the, the basics of, of all the, the main building blocks there. And a lot of this is built around uh, a build system called Fake, which, uh, again, I know we talked about a little bit on the, the last show because we're using that as, um, for a whole bunch of things, but basically, and, as is the case with pretty much anything that ends in AKE, it's, it's a build system. Um, this one built in F sharp, hence the, the F in there. Uh, but what it really is, is a, it's a really awesome, uh, build system built in F sharp that it provides a really nice DSL for, for defining, um, just basic build targets and, and dependencies between build targets and things like that. 
Um, it's cross-platform, so you could run your fake scripts on you know either Windows or Mac, depending on which one you you happen to be running on. Um, and it also just ships with a whole bunch of really, really nice, uh, what they call helpers right in the box. Mm. So right out of the box, you get a bunch of helpers for things like Team City or importing end unit tests. Um, and we actually published, uh, at Ola, we published a few helpers that we had built as part of this process. Uh -huh. So I mentioned before that, um, anytime we deploy something out to test flight, we, we push a, a link. We use HipChat as our, our company chat app. Um, so what, ap what happens is that it, when the build um, pushes out to test flight, it, it grabs the link from the response to test flight, and then it just pushes a message into HipChat. So we open source the the helper that we did um, to to do that HipChat push, but then we also open sourced a couple helpers that we built for doing uh, Xamarin builds as well. Mm. So I mean, we can talk um, a little bit about you know the different commands maybe later involved in doing Xamarin builds. I mean. There's a limit to how interesting it is to hear people talk about command lines and things like that. But um, the the short story there is that we the the helpers that we published for fake that you can see used in in that sample are um, they're basically just wrappers around these commands that ship with with Xamarin in the first place. So you can just really quickly and, and uh, concisely in your code just do iOS and Android builds or NuGet package restore or Xamarin component restore and, and all these different things you might need to do without having to necessarily remember all the the details about every little command that you do. Well, there's just so many moving parts here, but I feel like that two-week delay from Apple complicates everything. Like, you can't just wait two weeks for it to deploy before you continue working on the next version. No, but you don't necessarily need to either. I mean, it's the, you can kind of treat it like, like most other builds. I mean, if you think of it, if you did want to release every two weeks, which I mean, there, there are reasons for and against doing that. Right. Um, outside the scope of just, you know, continuous releasing. Um, but if you think about it, you know, you push a build, to, you do your testing, you push a build to Apple, you tag that with some sort of release number. And that, that doesn't really stop you from kind of continuing development and then submitting the next one and then submitting the next one. So I think like reality is you probably won't be iterating that much faster. And, and also like under normal circumstances, Apple is usually within a week, I found. So it's just kind of the last couple of months. Yeah, that it's been, it's been a bad couple of months for them. But even at a week, what happens if you, if you push another build to Apple before they've got the previous one deployed? So you won't be able to push a new one into the review queue if you have one already waiting for that ah. particular app. So you'd have to pull that out of the review queue and kind of start over. And it's it's really a black box as to to where you are in the queue, and sometimes it, it you'll your app will switch from waiting um, waiting for review to in review, and it'll sit there for another three or four days. So uh, I think we sometimes me and Apple have different definitions of what in review means, but, <laughs> <laughs> but for, for the most part, it hasn't it hasn't slowed down our our normal development. It just gets tricky when, um, especially because we're releasing apps. For, that have other clients branding in it and they want to do marketing campaigns around releases and we have to try and explain that you know at a certain point it, it's out of our control to yeah. uh, when this thing is going to light up in the app store and it is what it is but this also encourages you to make changes as you were saying in ways that don't involve shipping a new version of the app to the phone what about doing like web embedments in your app that's absolutely an option too and i think um you know, to take a, a, a small diversion from the, the CI topic here, like one of the things that doesn't get 
talked about enough, in my opinion, is actually that Xamarin provides probably the, one of the nicer hybrid app environments that there are out there because you do get kind of the best of both worlds. So you, they have a, a template that ships in, you know, with the Xamarin install where you can add a, a pre-processed Razor template to your app. So you get, you know, Razor syntax that you might be used to from ASP.NET if you, if you're working with, um, if you're working with ASP.NET, um, you can, you can compile models against it and you can render HTML, like really nice HTML using Razor and then pump that into a web view too. So, I mean, that's, that's a slightly different case of web, a web view that ships inside of the app. But it's a it's a pretty powerful thing if you have certain screens or even pieces of a screen that it's like, oh well, maybe a maybe a web view is is the nicer way to render this small piece right. of my app. And you don't necessarily have to and then you can actually share that across iOS and Android. So we're doing that in in some cases as well for things like a say a licensing screen where it really is just a big block of text. It doesn't need to, to you know be a native list or anything like that. And then you could just share that across platforms. Um but it, but there is also the option of uh, doing web views, and we support that in our app as well. So one of the um, that's actually one of the more common extension points that we have for specific branding for a client. So we have the ability to say pull in their their Twitter feed or their Facebook page or their YouTube page, so you can watch videos and things like that. Um, so certain things do lend themselves pretty well to kind of an embedded web view. Um, so it, it is useful to to mix that in where it makes sense. Right. How much time do you guys spend on the system versus spending uh, time on the on the client code itself? So I, mean, I guess it depends on how you're defining system. Your deployment system, your your whole environment, you know, tweaking your environment, I guess. So the environment is is pretty stable. I mean, that's one of the 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 reasons I also wanted to like start talking about this stuff a little bit more is once I got into it, like I going into it, I wasn't really sure how easy it would be to create you know, the, a big CI environment like this and, and automate a lot of this stuff. And once I got in there, I found that it actually wasn't um, nearly as daunting as I was expecting. Um, so I, I definitely encourage people to, to take advantage of that sort of thing. So right now, I mean, a lot of the time that we spend personally on our, our build system is really just around things specific to our system, like say, uh, our templating system that we built out to generate the apps that we need for iOS and Android and things like that. So that's still what I would consider um, not really infrastructure part of the system, but, you know, core app behavior part of the system. Yeah. But the vast majority of the time that we spend developing in general is in our um, really in our core layer. So we have uh, like a real test driven core layer that has, you know, probably four or five hundred unit tests at this point. And then, you know, those tests are run on every single commit on every branch. And that's where pretty much all of the real app logic is, the stuff that, you know, talks to the database and talks to the, the Olo API and, and navigates between screens and, and all that kind of stuff. That's the PCL layer, right? Exactly, yeah. yeah. So it's, it, it, it is an actual PCL. And we push as much as we can down into that layer. And it really does thin down the, the amount of, like, real work that needs to be done in the UI layer, which right. is... Um, really helpful just for stability, just to have these real testable layers. And you're using MVVM cross, as you said before, right? Yeah, that's right. So I mean, we found that to be really, really, um, it makes for a really good architecture for this sort of thing. Right. What's the current state of that? I mean, we, we love to, uh, we'd love to talk to Stuart, but you know, it changes a lot in over time. It gets better and better. How's that working these days? It's good. It's, um, I mean, a lot of people, like, he took kind of the summer off and, you know, good for him to, from, like, blogging and, and doing a whole lot of public stuff. So, a lot yeah. of people were kind of concerned to the health of the project. But, I mean, if you if you watch the, the GitHub 
um, GitHub account for MVVM Cross and watch the commits. There's there's just a lot of activity, a lot of people in the community doing a lot of work. Um, yeah, the only thing that matters is the check-in rate. That's what shows you how healthy a project actually is. Mm, just because right. a leader takes a break doesn't mean there isn't a team there that's getting stuff done. Mm-hmm. That being said, he checked in four days ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, he's he's doing he's doing plenty of work too. It's just some of it wasn't quite as public as it was before. So I guess some people took that the wrong way. But the other the other side of it that I'll mention too is that we actually sat on um, we sat on a version of MVVM Cross in our system for probably about six months just because we didn't we didn't really need to update it. Like we it's a really stable system. Um, it didn't a lot of the new work that was going into it was for platforms that we didn't need, so we just yeah. kind of left that be for a while. Um, and it it really didn't cause any problems. It's only until um, we updated it a couple of weeks ago to pull in some new changes that um, that we contributed and some other people contributed. Um, but it really is uh, honestly a, a really stable platform to develop on, which is really really nice. Because again, if I have a bug in one, I have a bug in twenty. <laughs> so, Greg, how do I get started with this? What is sort of the first bits to getting this working? So, and I'm going to just assume that at this point, most people know what CI is in general. But I mean, as far as setting up a, an environment specifically for, uh, let's just say for Xamarin apps, uh, what I what I generally recommend is, is getting a, a Mac mini. I mean, because you're going to want, um, and while you can do uh, development on Windows for, for Xamarin iOS, you still need a Mac in the tool chain. So when it really comes down to it, like I just want all my stuff building right on a Mac. So I do... Um, in our office, we have a Mac Mini that's um, connected to our normal Team City environment, so this isn't even a separate um, build environment, mm. and it just handles all of our iOS and our Android builds. And then once you have that set up, it really the setup there is, is basically the same as setting up a new developer machine. So you have to install um, you install whatever build agent software you want, which usually just amounts to copying a folder from one install folder to wherever it's going to go, and then you're 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 ready to go there. Um, and then you have to do, you know, you install Xcode and you install the, the Android developer tools and then you install Xamarin and all of those tools. Um, and then you'll, what you'll have to do is you still have to do um, an activation with Xamarin because of licensing and all of that. But you don't need to buy a, a separate license just for your CI environment. So what we actually do, what you're allowed to do and what we do is um, it actually just uses an activation off of my, my Olo developer account. So you don't have to worry about, oh, do I need to pay like an extra few grand a year just to, to run a build server? I and mean, you can, you could just do that off of what you already have. And Carl, you, but you go at this a different way. You've got, you use your Mac Pro for that, right? Yeah. I got a MacBook Pro and I installed Parallels. So mm-hmm. I switch over full screen to Windows. And, you know, the downside is there's a little lag I find with running Parallels and maybe it's just tweaking. But, uh, uh, and that gives me everything on one machine. And so, you know, synchronizing is just like switching tabs to pull up, you know, the, the Mac thing and the, right. and the Windows thing. I mean, that's an awesome setup for doing your development work. But right. the, the key thing for having a CI build agent is that it really is a, a separate environment yep. from your, like whatever your local machine is. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, you, you can get away with doing Windows in certain cases. I mean, making Windows iOS builds work with CI is a little complicated from what I understand right now. Just because you need to do the the whole pairing between Visual Studio and the Mac, which requires a UI, so you have to install Visual Studio and have the pairing running and all that kind of stuff. 
Um, so I do, I mean, if, if you can, I recommend just picking up, a, you know, it's like, what, like a $400 Mac mini. It doesn't need to be a big powerhouse of a machine because you're not really doing anything on it. And it could just kind of sit in a corner if you want and, and run your builds and, and do all your deployments and things like that. Yeah, you know, somebody else suggested that it would be better to use, uh, to install Windows 8 with Boot Camp. And then when you want to do your stuff on the Mac, you boot into the Mac OS and you can pull up uh, your Windows in a, in a VM. But, you know, like you say, that's great when you're the guy doing it all on one machine. But you're when you're in an environment, uh, I also have a Mac Mini, and that's the way I did it before. But, you know, when you're going around to conferences and trying to demonstrate stuff, it just kind of stinks to have to pull it along another machine. Oh, yeah, I, I agree. I mean, for the talk that I gave at Evolve, what I ended up doing was I, I created an OS X uh, VM in VMware. So I technically my build environment was just a VM running locally. And I had to keep saying, please don't do this in a real, you know, real environment. But <laughs> it, it was a lot nicer than carrying around like a, a Mac mini with me everywhere just to do the talk and have another machine that could break on me up, up on stage. Yeah, but it is sort of real life, right? It's the distributed thing. And you've got multiple developers working on this project too. So there needs to be an intersection point for all of that. Exactly, exactly. So, I mean, the having this dedicated environment really takes so many headaches and, and, and things just out of the equation. Like I used to always be worried about what changed or I used to always worry about, oh, well, maybe I can't switch to the alpha channel of Xamarin or I can't try out the new version of OS X or something because I don't know if I'm going to have to release apps in the next two weeks. Um, and it, it, it just kind of frees you up to to do development really like a, otherwise you're just going to be held back by your tools if you're if you're the the point of failure there and then the other thing that um, I didn't mention before is I mean I talked about how we have um, kind of one click deployment to test flight we have one click packaging for the app store um, and and what that's enabled us to do is have actually our, our account management team in many cases do uh, we created um, what, what to Apple looks like developer accounts for a few people in our account management and customer service teams. Right. Um, so they can actually go in and they can do a lot of the, the setup work for, you know, getting, putting in release notes and doing screenshots and things like that. So that even by the time it gets handed over to the engineering team, it really is a matter of just uploading a file that was, um, that was pub pushed out as an artifact in Team City. And then it, uh, it just kind of frees up the engineering team to to do core development work, which is really powerful. Is that automatable, all of the notes and stuff that need to go into a, an iOS deploy? So, I mean, yeah. I mean, right now, we've automated that through non-developers doing it manually. Which right. Isn't, uh, it's not a perfect solution, but it, it works decently well for an, if you're an engineer. But yeah, I and mean, there's some stuff you can do to, to automate a little bit more of the, the upload process. Um, but I think, I mean, these are all like web UIs. So in theory, you could scrape the web UI and, and do automated entry and a lot of stuff like that as well. Um, it hasn't been, um, we're still kind of evolving our process around that stuff. So we don't have anything really clever or novel in place there. Um, but, but the, the key thing is just being able to pump out these, uh, build packages and, um, and we also want to automate things like doing the screenshots and, and things like that, like really just lowering the, the manual overhead to, right. to all mm -hmm. of these releases. Of all these things that are required for every deploy. Is, is it basically the same set of issues for Android? Um, it's pretty similar, yeah. I mean, it's, they all have their own different image sizes that you need, which is annoying. Or they all have their own. They have like different um, maximum lengths of descriptions for release right. notes. And there's all that kind of stuff that 
honestly, my account management team knows better than I do at this point, which actually says a lot for how much you can automate because I don't need to know all these little things anymore, which for me is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and then another thing, um, so like if you watched Evolve this year, and I mean, they announced, so they announced Test Cloud last year, which is awesome. And then this year, that's become a, a really big focus for them. And they also announced the Xamarin.UI tests, which is, um, you know, Think of it as a, a Selenium library in C Sharp for automated UI tests of your, your iOS or your Android apps. Um, so we've actually integrated those as well. So we have the ability to um, run automated UI tests across our different apps right through Team City. So it can run them um, in the simulator or the emulator right on the, the actual Team City build agent. And we have the ability with, uh, again, like a, a one-click deploy, we can push all of those UI tests out to Test Cloud and then run them against, you know, hundreds of different devices. So it, it we, we were also able to really lower the barrier there to, to doing um, device testing and, and UI testing kind of as we need, which has um, been really helpful. Wow, this is, this is amazing stuff. Um, where can we go to check out the rest of your resources here? So I would say you could check out, I mean, if you go to the like evolve.xamarin.com, the video of the, the talk I gave is up there. Um, mm -hmm. the slides are all up on my, my speaker deck account. Um, I guess you guys uh, can include that stuff in the show notes. Sure. And then, uh, the CI sample that I worked on is all up on my GitHub account. So that's, um, github.com slash gshackles. And that has, uh, the downloadable sample with, uh, I basically just took the, the tip calc sample from Xamarin Forms. So it's a Xamarin Forms app that I, I added a couple unit tests for and a couple UI tests for, um, and then created a, a full build sample there. So you can kind of see end to end what it's like to create a, a build system in, in fake and F sharp. And you can see under the hood what it has to do to, to compile Xamarin apps. That's awesome. Greg, thank you so much for joining us this hour. No, thanks for having me guys. This is great. And keep up the awesome work. I'll try. <laughs> All right. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got to transmit a band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a